Dotnet Rocks episode 884 with guests Don Syme, Stuart Halloway, John Hughes, and David Nolan. Recorded live Wednesday, June 12th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. And by Franklin's.net, makers of GesturePack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at GesturePak.com. And by Diatom, developers of the .NET Rocks mobile app, available now for Windows Phone, iPhone, and Android phones. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Hey, Oslo! It's .NET Rocks! All right, no jumping on the floating platform. That was exciting for all of us yeah, up thank here. thank you very much. Let me tell you. We are hanging by four chains. Yeah. Those chains are just not that big. It's great when you do that in an elevator, yeah. an old elevator, you know? It only breaks once a year. Yeah, that's what I tell people. So we're here in Oslo at the Oslo Spectrum in NDC, the Norwegian Developers Conference. <laughs> and uh, we don't have a better no framework, but you do have a comment. Too. Yes, I actually I grabbed a comment off of show 851. That's the one we did on F-Sharp Programming with Thomas Petrusek. Petrusek, yeah. Petrusek. And this comment comes from uh, a user named Preetz. I'll presume that's not his real name, or her real name. Uh, hey, Carl and Richard, love the F-Sharp shows. Please keep them coming. I heard the show a while ago, and I was really impressed with the idea behind type providers. Recently, when faced with the dreaded task of importing a CSV file, I tried spicing things up by using a type provider, and boy, was I pleased. Having the field name show up in the IntelliSense simply by specifying the file path was nothing short of spectacular. Genius! No parsing, no indexes, no real need to even look at the CSV file. I would love to hear about other small but productive ways in which F-Sharp can be incorporated into everyday business applications built mostly with C-Sharp. Great show, as always. Awesome. And that's from Preet. Uh, Dude, we've got Don sitting right here beside us. We'll let him know that his stuff rocks. Because, yeah, we're big fans of type providers, too. Yeah. And uh, for that great comment, I'm going to send a .NET Rocks mug out to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, you can write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps for iPhone, Android, Windows Phone 8, Windows Phone 7, and Windows 8. And those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises. If you'd like to build you a mobile app, just check out diatomenterprises.com. To a bunch of developers. Yeah. You guys don't want to write mobile apps, do you? Uh, they're, they're still in Windows forms. Right? That's right. okay. <laughs> and that's why they're all functional. That's panel. right. So let's uh, have our panel introduce themselves, starting with Mr. Don Syme. Hi, Don. Hi, good to be back on the show. Uh, my name's Don Syme. I've uh, become a bit of a regular, a regular yeah. with you guys. We're in different places around the world. Last course. time was Boston for Monkey Space while that's, we were on the road trip. That's the one. Yeah. Is this still part of the road trip? Or no, we actually went home for a few days. Okay. But not very many. Plus, yeah. it's really tough to get an RV across the Atlantic. Yeah. It's tricky. Yeah. Tricky. <laughs> Worth a shot, but you know. After okay. that last one. So uh, these days, I'm a MeshUp community contributor. I'm a, a principal researcher at Microsoft Research and just. Uh, Love working in the context of either software generally, .NET software uh, as well. 
Awesome. And, and still largely involved with the F-Sharp project, which I found really cool that you can be a researcher and contributing to a product out in the field. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've done lots of innovative things with, with F-Sharp, and I, just, I, I get a lot of my ideas by working with industry practitioners uh, like here at conferences like this. And there's just so much innovation happening at a place uh, in the kind of talks you see in industry as well. But, you know, I don't separate industry and researchers. Just do stuff. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Stuart. Hi, I'm Stuart Halloway. I am a developer of the Closure programming language. Closure is a functional language that targets the JVM, the CLR, and JavaScript, and some other places. I said those... version for .NET, too. I said CLR. Okay, I, I CLR. Covered that. Yeah, I covered that. Um, and also a developer of the Datomic database, which is a functional database uh, written mostly in Closure. That's cool. Very cool. Yeah, we got to talk about that. John. Okay, I'm John Hughes. Uh, I'm afraid I've probably been doing functional programming since before many of you were born. Would that be Lisp? Uh, started off with Lisp, yes. Nice. I wrote my own Lisp interpreter. Oh, that's Yo. a shame. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it again a few years later. It was terrible. That's tough, yeah. So I've been involved with Haskell since the start. I'm one of the original designers. Wow. a lot of time with that. And um, in recent years, I've got more and more interest in Erlang. I've also developed a functional testing tool called QuickCheck, which I'm now spending a lot of time with. Um, my history is uh, I've been an academic my entire career, but uh, for the last uh, eight years or so, I've also had one foot in industry, so now I divide my time between awesome. David. Hi, my name is David Nolan. I'm a JavaScript developer for the New York Times. I also do a little bit of Ruby there. Um, I'm one of the uh, main contributors to ClojureScript now, so that's the, uh, the JavaScript version of Clojure. Um, I'm also uh, sort of a... Uh, fan of logic programming, relational programming, which is sort of a, a lost thing these days. And it sort of had a little bit of a renaissance and then at least the uh, closure community through a library that I lead called uh, Core Logic. All right. I mean, I think there's a logical place to start off we're here, which is all of you, John especially, but all of you have been in development for quite some time. Why has functional programming resurged in such a big way? Because it, it, it's always been around, you know, in the 70s, 80s, they talked about it a lot, but it seems to be suddenly incredibly relevant. It's almost like we went through this thing where we play around with objects for a while, and, you know, we did it, we had our little fun, played with our little friends, and now we're back to, like, you know, where it started. So I think one really important factor is the arrival of multiple processes, and those have really put the wind up. Uh, many, many people working in the industry that I know, and uh, functional languages have an obvious advantage for doing parallel programming, because you're, you're not going to step on your own toes and uh, suffer data races the whole time. And at Ericsson, for example, I know that a lot of the, uh, a lot of the products that had been built with Erlang, they ran them on multiple processes that suddenly went twice as fast, they suddenly went four times as fast, depending on the number of cores. And for the C++ code, that just wasn't the case. Now, we just had to keep the same core going faster and faster, we wanted our C++ to run. At another core, it just went slower, actually, right. or just use one core. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's one big factor for generating more interest in functional programming. Plus, I think it's worth being interested in in its own right anyway. I mean, who doesn't like the short, right, concise, short, correct code? Sure. As long as you can read it. Of course you can read it. Yeah. At least once, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not person who believes that writing more text makes code more readable. Oh, true. Spoken like a real list programmer right there. <laughs> Spaces are for the weak. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Named parameters are for Ferengi. 
two characters in an identified no way. And John, I got to place some kudos on you because I think bringing a, a, a functional language to the CLR and, and sort of to the studio developers, I remember seeing it as its original research project. And I think one of the things that was interesting about you was you did a few things where you, you brought these different languages into the, 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 uh, the Visual Studio space. Uh, yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, there's a, there's, there's a, the need for functional programming, the things we have needs, and there's yeah. a supply of functional programming. I mean, we've seen on the supply side, uh, you know, we've got F-sharp and that's fabulous. We've got functional programming options in C-sharp, we've got this wonderful closure system, which is providing, you know, meeting, meeting needs in the industry as well, and uh, Haskell providing a really, uh, I mean, supplying kind of a, a guiding light for, for what functional programming in a very pure sense, I think, as, as well as practical industry applications. So on the supply side, and across the board, I think that's been a big, a big, big part of why functional programming has made progress, and, and Scala as well, as, as, as yes, I mentioned as well, in the JVM context. So, uh, you I think you camel in or something? Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's quite a few different uh, systems which I should mention in that context. Erlang and Ocaml being two, two more. And I've probably forgotten like half a dozen others. Sure. So uh, I think you were mainly asking about the need, uh, the, the demand side, like what's changing in the industry. Uh, Drew, you want to take that on? Yeah, well, I actually, I actually want to just jump in with a, a, a bit of a different slant, which is I got my start on the Microsoft stack and spent a decade there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember when uh, Java came out, and then it came out again and it was called C-Sharp. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, and developers on, on both sides of that world were really skeptical of garbage collection. Yeah. They were extremely skeptical of sure. its performance characteristics. Oh, and in the involved. early days, I was going to write my own garbage collector. It's a big trust issue. Yeah, there's no way you could do it right. And so and so now we're in a world where everybody presumes, almost everybody, you know, 70% of developers are working on garbage collected platforms. It's not it's not controversial anymore. No. And it's an important part of making persistent data structures go. So yeah. if you look at introducing functional programming 20 years ago, it's kind of a, a soup to nuts deal. If you look at introducing now, you can make F-sharp run on the CLR. It's not a big deal. It's the platform people are already working on. You can make Clojure run on the JVM and the CLR. And it's not a big deal because people are already used to uh, running in an environment that's sufficiently powerful to enable you to do the things you want to do. Well, it's also not a big deal anymore because we still have memory leaks. We just don't notice it because we have 64 terabytes of RAM on our phones. <laughs> <laughs> you can leak for a while. Nobody cares. So I'd like to point to one other thing, actually, and that's uh, the arrival of Link. Which has obvious benefits for writing queries. Link L N L I N Q. That's L -I -N -Q. Right. So when I first read about that, I just came across it on the net. I couldn't believe that here were functional programming ideas appearing in a very mainstream language, namely mm -hmm. C sharp. And then what do you know? C sharp needed to get lambda expressions yeah. to take full advantage of generics. And once C sharp had lambda expressions, Visual Basic got lambda expressions. <laughs> right? And then C couldn't be too far behind. Right. They had some that. Soon, even Java will have Latin expressions. What's so I think, Java? I think that's really so, been a driving um, application to push functional programming ideas out into the mainstream, where they're visible to right. many, many developers. So on the Visual Basic question, I, I actually owe someone, of, uh, one of the Visual Basic designers at Ferrari, because I, I, bet that, I bet him at Ferrari that he would never get generics uh, into Visual Basic. Uh, and uh, lost. Uh oh, uh, yeah. yeah so, well, uh, he didn't say. Uh, he didn't. He, he could, 
be a slot car, right? Yeah, I think it's going to be yeah, yeah, it's it's just scale. Yeah, it's yeah. A, a 124 scale Ferrari. Or, or just, a, just an image I get off Google yeah, Images there you go. for our or yeah, Ferrari keychain. But yeah, we were all thrilled when we saw that just go ubiqu- uh, generics and then like yeah. go through the uh, ubiquitous in the, in the Microsoft and, and, and it's an awesome yeah. level of adoption absolutely how many how many how many developers yep we got wow. everyone almost, uh, almost everyone how many people uh, use Link Link there are almost, almost everyone. absolutely a room full of functional programmers congratulations to, there you go. to all of you but also to Eric Meyer and Anders and uh, everyone who worked yeah. really hard on Link that wasn't uh, my main geek and but they did an amazing job um, uh, yeah remarkable thing sorry David no I just wanted to throw out I also think that uh, another big reason functional programming is taking off is actually JavaScript so JavaScript had had first class functions in 1995, and people thought it was a toy language, right? Yeah, and, um, only because it was, but yeah. <laughs> and, it, and, so, and you can still argue that it is, but so much software is now constructed with it. Yeah, yeah right. huge software. I also think we had, I mean, Crawford's revelation about using the good bits of JavaScript, like, and then the, the browser war is actually making JavaScript run decently. Like, a bunch of good stuff happened. And also ignoring the bad bits. Yeah. But, but the other thing to note, too, is I, I recently went to a different conference in Oslo two weeks ago called, called Web Rebels, and I met this developer who is 21 years old, and he said, my first programming language was JavaScript. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course it was, <laughs> yeah. So, he, so here's a developer who is automatically introduced into a hybrid language, right? Something that had both objects and functional capabilities. Yeah. I think most developers going forward are going to be exposed to JavaScript before anything else in school. Even anybody who is in high school or junior high school who doesn't even want to be a programmer. They'll take a web design course, they're going to learn some JavaScript. So I'll uh, bring up one, one more thing, which is actually sort of an extension of the, the Link thing. Link was put into C-sharp because of data. The, the, just the need to get this data integration with programming languages, and anyone that knows my recent work knows that's something I like really care about, but uh, to me, the fact that we're no longer fundamentally programming with you know local control objects like you know, GUI objects on the, on the screen, you know, on a local machine, which is what drove object-oriented programming largely, and now just so much of programming is about consuming data, process, transforming it in some way, and then re-emitting it in some uh, in some way. Mm-hmm. That's fundamental. That's, that's the fundamental bread and butter of functional programming. And, uh, yeah, so I think that sort of extends on from Link as, as, as well. So, Stuart, most of our listeners are .NET developers, obviously. .NET Rocks is the name of the show. Give, give us your pitch as to why they should check out Closure. So, uh, they should come on Friday and see my you know, full-length talk on that and, and not waste time when you can be seeing these guys talk about uh, functional languages and static versus dynamic. But I would say that, that Closure's big appeal is uh, is Rich's design aesthetic for building production systems, and and that's something that you can see at a surface you know skim of a language, but you actually have to spend time with a language and really appreciate that at every decision point that a decision has been made to further the goal of shipping production software, mm-hmm. and that's a separate goal from making developers happy and comfortable, also valuable. It's a separate goal from making things easy to learn or comfortable or familiar. All those things are also valuable. I, I think the, the most valuable thing Clojure did for me when I started uh, using it is anytime there was something in Clojure that didn't make sense to me, I was about to learn something. And there was just, you know, item after item after item uh, down that list. It reminds me of the 80s when object orientation sort of exploded. We had a lot of languages, uh, Eiffel's, and, and, you know, everybody was experimenting with what's the right way to describe objects. And it seemed to level off and die. At the moment, it seems like we have a proliferation of functional languages. Uh, 
Is it too many? Is there going to be a winner? I would say it's not enough yet. Really? As, as a for instance, um, I, was, I was retooling my presentation on Clojure, and I got to a point where I had done all the parts of Clojure except the fact that it's a, a Lisp dialect. And there's no language in the ecosystem right now that has the characteristics of Clojure that isn't a Lisp. Okay. Obviously, I'm going to argue that you want it to be a Lisp anyway, but I'm sure what there will be... What does it mean to be a Lisp? Uh, well, let's start with homoiconicity, right? It's a language that's programmed in data structures. Okay. So, so that, that's a distinguishing characteristic from the other languages we're likely to talk about here today, right? The language is built out of data, and out of the interpretation of data, there's not a, there's not a lot of syntax, you know, to get into. Not it's a lot just of commands. Not a, yeah, very, very little um, commands in the sense of doing imperative things. But that's more about it being functional. Yeah, interesting, interesting point. And then you also get strongly typed and, and, and dynamically typed functional languages on top of that. Uh, is F-sharp actually strongly typed? I guess we'll have to say yes. Yes. Yeah. I know you do some funny things there to make it, make it a little more blurry. Where JavaScript, clearly not. Right. So, yeah, I just feel like we're, we're still groping around trying to find the one the one right way. If there is one. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I think when you consider the variation in runtime systems underneath, uh, I mean, Clojure does a pretty good job of, like, well, you can, you've got a choice to either make things very transparent across different runtimes. Sorry. Uh, similar across different runtime systems with that uh, kind of cost of the interoperability, interoperability boundary. Mm -hmm. We become a bit more tightly coupled to a runtime system like Scarlet, JVM, for example. And you, yeah. get, you actually get quite a lot of benefits by, by that tighter coupling. I, I think it's hard to see there being one right functional programming language which wins in this situation. I when mean, you were designing at Sharp, you, were you, you must have been inspired and, you know, Picking the best things from these different languages, can you look at a certain a language like Erlang, let's say, and you know what did I take from Erlang to uh, to put in F sharp? Uh, sure. Well, with Erlang, that's easy. You take the, uh, an agent programming model, and uh, you, you you have an in memory agent programming model in particular. That's by no means all of what's attractive with Erlang. There's a lot. There's a lot more in the platform. What that is? Oh, I know the agent model is a mailbox process model where you just have a. Uh, um, uh, an asynchronous agent that waits asynchronously to, uh, to for messages to arrive in its, in, its, in, its, in its mailbox queue and then processes those in a sort of single-threaded but asynchronously single-threaded way. So it's built, it's actually the reason we put async programming into F-sharp originally was to have a nice support for the uh, asynchronous programming needed to build agents. And that's like actually how it got into, yeah, connected through C-sharp, although it went into C-sharp for different it almost it's sounds like an operating system. That sense, uh, certainly, from the Erlang perspective, you can run Erlang without an underlying operating system. I believe that's right, right on the middle, and it's effectively its own operating system. Is that correct? Uh, yes, there is an embedded implementation that does pretty much that. Normally, you've got it on. And I'm going to call it back to the show we did with Brian Hunter, where he was talking about the origins of this thing was running telco gear on the bare metal yeah. as fast as it possibly could. So, well, running on telecoms gear on Linux or VX yeah. yeah, fast, fast, and, and, but naturally small granular chunks of work that can be spread across a lot of hardware pretty easily. Yeah, so I think there's, there's a couple of things that Don didn't mention to report about it, and uh, one of them is the fault tolerance mechanisms mm -hmm. that let you survive a whole lot of bugs. You know, maybe you're handling a thousand calls, maybe you lose one call, but the other nine might keep going. Right. So that's one thing that's important. And the other thing is the very easy distribution. So that if you have a code that works on 
one machine in Kubernetes distributed across the cluster. Right. It's what you talked about is as soon as we had it started adding more cores to Erlang, it just went faster. Yeah, well, that's running faster on one machine with multiple cores. Right. But you can also distribute over many machines on the cluster. And of course, communication becomes a lot more expensive, but nevertheless, you can often make programs go even faster by doing that. Really fast. And can you point to other aspects of maybe other languages that... Uh, Oh, uh, sure. I mean, our, our camel was a huge, huge inspiration for F-Sharp, uh, in particular for us being a strongly time-functional language with uh, correct code uh, being at its uh, core guiding guiding light. Uh, and um, uh, certainly Python and Haskell, uh, the other, and, and C-Sharp, the object, uh, the object model from C-Sharp, the, the sort of indentation-aware syntax and the kind of many parts of the philosophy of Python uh, in uh, trying to get one, one good way to do things options. Uh, didn't always succeed with that, but, but it's hard, that's hard. It's challenging. Uh, Have there been other object-oriented functional... Uh, well, uh, okay. uh, certainly OCaml is... Uh, we use a different integration for objects, but the way they integrate objects in OCaml is really, really technically very nice. Uh, yeah. So what about pattern matching? Like Erlang, I know that has, this is one of the great things about Erlang. Would you say that the, that the sort of the type provider borrows from the Pattern uh, no, not particularly. I mean, pattern matching uh, in NF Sharp comes from a combination of uh, OCaml and uh, the set of extensions, which, John, did you work on them? Was it Phil? The views extensions in, in Haskell. Oh, that was Phil. Phil, Phil Wadler, uh, so looking at how we can make pattern matching sort of extensible, and that's actually really, really sweet part of F Sharp. Um, uh, the type provider mechanism uh, really um, kind of just came out of what we did within the team at Microsoft. And, uh, wow. That's very cool. Very original thinking. Now, there's, there's another piece to this as we've been exploring with different functional languages, which it seems like the object-oriented languages have grabbed the best bits of functional and brought them into themselves. So I don't, as a developer, need to switch languages anymore. I just use Link or, you know, other happy elements. And we did a great show a while back uh, talking about programming JavaScript functional. I think that if your objects still have centers on them, you haven't grabbed the best bit of functional programming yet. <laughs> and if your objects don't have centers on them, are they still objects? Well, that is actually an interesting sure. question. I think I think the most useful part of OO is polymorphism. And right. you can see that expressed in a lot of different ways in a lot of different places. Uh, uh, closure data is polymorphic. It can conform to Java interfaces. Closure has its own notion of protocols. Um, and that's a, that's a powerful thing. And obviously, it's optimized. It's the interface path in the VM, so you can you know take advantage of that. Um, but the objects, the only way you get from one object to another is by a constructor. Right. Right. So so I, I want to double down on encapsulation and say everybody should work like Closure does, and the only way you get new things is by constructing them from old things. And that gives us a sense of immutability that lends itself to you know, functional language work. Well, it also gives us uh, objects that we can trust and use. And distribute and and use uh, have multiple people using in a single process, right? If I know I'm holding on to this and you're not going to muck with it, right? Right? If you want one, you can make one that's almost like this. Go but make a little your bit own. Different. Go make your own. Yeah, yeah. Right. Hey. So everything in closure is a constructor in yeah. that sense. There are many objects, but this one is mine. Right. Reminds me of a rifle I once knew. <laughs> so this question of uh, you know, whether we need functional languages now that functional features are appearing in more mainstream mm -hmm. languages that's one that comes up fairly often. And um, I'm not sure I've met a developer who said, oh, now Lambda expressions are in C++, I don't need to take any interest in Haskell. <laughs> and so I think what we're seeing is that the ideas are spreading into more mainstream languages. 
ideas. And if you if you like those ideas in C++ or C Sharp or whatever, doesn't that make you curious about the languages that they came from? Absolutely, but I also think this is two different elements. I think for myself as a developer, it is in my best interest to learn more languages. It makes me think more clearly about development. But the separate issue is the engineering piece of how many languages should be in this application. Sure. But if you look back to the period when object-oriented programming was becoming popular, mm -hmm. then object-oriented features ended up being added to all kinds of languages. Yes. You can do object-oriented programming in Fortran now, or COBOL. Yes. But that if, doesn't make it right. <laughs> if what you want to do is object-oriented programming, yes. are those the languages you would choose? Probably not. No. Probably not. I think we'll see a similar development where functional features are concerned. So, ultimately, we'll, it'll all be functional. There was a cobalt.net, too, but that didn't make that right either. <laughs> so, David, uh, is JavaScript clearly the future of functional programming? Um, it will be the future thing that you compile to. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, so I don't know if people have followed things like TypeScript um, or Dart. Um, or Copy definitely script. CopyScript, definitely uh, ClojureScript. Um, I think the functional programming languages or things that are similar to JavaScript are actually leading the wave. I mean, Dart is more object-oriented than, than the other options, mm -hmm. but it's still also moving this way uh, because people realize that JavaScript is maybe not the most ideal language for future software systems. But regardless, we can't change it, right? So maybe we compile down to it. Yeah, you can't argue with the ubiquity of the JavaScript compiler. You can't. You, yeah. yeah. And, and this is not going to be fixed, right? No. Maybe, maybe in 50 years we'll see a different... You know, foundation, but the assembler of tomorrow. Yeah, and of course, Clojure and F Sharp both have fabulous uh, JavaScript solutions, right? With, with Clojure Script, which you work on, and F Sharp Web Sharper uh, solution is one of the best JavaScript uh, compiling systems out there, uh, and with all the benefits of strong typing over the top. One of the interesting things that's happening with TypeScript. Uh, uh, how many of the audience you know, have taken a look at TypeScript? Yep, got a good look. About yep, more half. Yeah, more than half. So, uh, I mean, TypeScript's a great language and everything, but uh, one of the things that interests me is that it gives us uh, a meta metadata for JavaScript components. It gives us strong typings for JavaScript components through, through the TypeScript definition files that are beginning to be sort of standard parts of, of JavaScript components these days. So what we're seeing in the strongly typed functional language world, or uh, well, F-sharp anyway, is thus using those to give strongly typed projections through the type provider mechanism into F-sharp. So when you're compiling F-sharp down to JavaScript, you, you actually get strong typing through all these JavaScript components by, as a side effect, uh, perhaps an unintended side effect of the TypeScript effort. So I actually think, you know, TypeScript is a language, fine, but uh, one thing we might see is sort of the introduction of typed metadata in as a standard part of the JavaScript world. Now, I'm actually interested in asking David, what, what does the JavaScript world feel about the introduction of typed metadata as part of sort of standard methodology? I mean, I mean, so I actually think JavaScript people in general um, are really against types and against right. typing because they had to, to go through the mess that was ECMAScript 4, right? <laughs> um, so I think they're very wary of any movement towards typing anything, and they're sort of frowned upon TypeScript because of this. But it, it didn't strike me that TypeScript was built for JavaScript developers. Well, and it also... That's also that's also correct, I think. Yeah, it does, you know, all these things don't change the JavaScript that comes out of it and the JavaScript that it runs. Yeah, but the question is, let's say you're building a JavaScript library. Do you build it in a way that you can give it a TypeScript typing or not? Are you, are you designing a typed component 
or are you describing JavaScript component, which pushes things in a way that makes it kind of... Yeah, could, like, I mean, the question is, could you yeah. build a, a JavaScript library in a way that it couldn't have TypeScript added? Uh, I don't think it's actually, I think it always can, yeah. uh, because uh, TypeScript has, can use any type for, 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 for at, at any point. Yeah. It needs to, but the question is how type it would be, I, I guess, would be... And how much you get rewarded? I mean, uh, this is not my zone, so... Um, so I remember when TypeScript came out, I, I think it's very interesting. I'm a JavaScript developer, so I'm always fascinated with new developments. But it was funny to look at the typing for jQuery, right? Nearly everything in jQuery is any-to-any. Any. Right. Yeah. In, in <laughs> so other words, like, what am I doing? How, how useful is that typed file, yeah. right? Not, and jQuery not, has not a reputation much. for being flexible, so it almost makes you wonder if flexible things end up having that type really often. Oh, I think, I think, I think, that, I, 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 <laughs> yeah, I mean, that can be the, that, that can be the case, yeah. I mean, any yeah. is very flexible. Yeah. Not terribly typed, very flexible. So there's contention then in the JavaScript community about uh, JavaScript sort of becoming the thing that type languages compile down to. Well, yeah, I think this question is, I mean, there's JavaScript, we all agree about JavaScript as a runtime environment. We, yeah. you know, we may not love it, but it's there, it's ubiquitous, it's, 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 it's got pros, it's got cons, it's really interesting initiatives with things like ASMJS to make that uh, kind of environment you know, run, run fast. Um, now, uh, the question is, what's a component ecosystem? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a big, that's a big, big question. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah. What, what, what metadata does stuff come with? All well, everyone's a C sharp developer here, pretty much one hundred percent. And yeah, we love having that metadata on those topic components. That really drives a lot of the development experience, a lot of tooling, a lot of the way you think about your software, and a lot of productivity. Yeah, too. It's a huge impact. These guys might say is actually a sort of a, 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 this metadata is like a curse. It's a straitjacket. Kind of. Um, what's your approach to metadata and kind of closure components? Well, I guess there's a couple of things. Uh, the first thing is that in closure, it's idiomatic to program with data, so with maps, lists, sets, vectors, and so um, you could have. I mean, closure has metadata. You can have arbitrary maps of additional information associated with these things. And there have been projects I've worked on that have used that to communicate additional information that might be automatically consumed. Uh, you know, by another tool. But generally, um, uh, I should say, I'm not opposed to that, that sort of thing categorically. Um, I've seen it mostly misused. Because what, what happens is developers sit down to solve a problem, and their problem is basically about data. And they manufacture an object and an interface to that object that's just an interface to data. But the interface to data that they just made up is a unique, one-of-a-kind snowflake for which there's no library code out in the universe that can consume it. Sure. So what? And then they give you metadata to tell you what it is. It's like, why don't you just make that thing implement map, which is an, interf an interface I already know, right. uh, and be able to consume it that way. And so I think that it's not the metadata itself that's a problem. It's the it's the proliferation of interfaces that should never have been born. Yeah, it need to be done that way. The curse of object-oriented 101, right? You first learn about objects, and then everything has to have objects yeah. I mean, why isn't why isn't map just mixed in as an interface to objects? It could be. There's no reason it could be. I did, I'm just wrestling with I mean, closure, especially. I've found a fast this idea that I could write some code in closure, could compile it in, in closure.net, and it would be running against CLR, or compile it in traditional closure, and theory is running against JVM, or against this CS script approach, and suddenly it's running in JavaScript. Now you can sort of mix and match what's your preferred runtime, what's faster, what's got the flexibility you need. It's the, the promise idea. of C. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> right, once run everywhere? Yeah. Well, so there's there's a lot of nuance in that promise, and, and Don alluded to this earlier, talking about Scala. 
really right. targeting the JVM. I would argue that Clojure actually also really targets platforms. So the interrupt story is direct, mm -hmm. right? You're calling directly to things, which means that there's not... So there are languages out there that try to do more of bridge that gap, like Phantom, right? Right, where you can have a real way to say, I want to write my code once and run it anywhere. In Clojure, you're going to write your algorithmic code once. You're going to write your I.O. code per platform. Right. So it, it is much more about delivering the capabilities of the individual platforms than it is about uh, allowing you to say, I'm going to write something and have it run everywhere. Yeah, this was not intended as a cross-platform store. No, it's not. Yeah. It's, really, it's really a story about having good language semantics that you can carry with you from platform to platform and do things those platforms are good at. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think it's a very interesting statement. I'm not a big believer in the cross-platform story. I've seen it too many times, and it always comes up wrong. That In the end, the customer only has one platform, and that's the only platform they care about. They won't sacrifice anything because you want to run on this platform. We've seen that today with phones and devices. Yep. Right? You know, the native versus web. You know, how, do I, how do I write an app for a phone? And so if people would rather have native apps. You give them the choice. So JavaScript is completely useless, David. I don't know why you use it at all. I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm the dinosaur here. <laughs> and yet, seemingly, the future seems to be pushing in your direction. Yeah. So maybe we're the old guys here. Like, get off my lung, you know? Come to think of it, we are the old guys here. Yeah. Yeah, David's clearly the youngest on, the ta on, on this platform here. Look at this. Like, really? That's what you're thinking about? Yeah. Uh, I want to get back to this uh, idea of functional and parallelism because it doesn't seem like it's actually an intrinsic part. You do have to do something at the compiler level to really take, take advantage of multiple cores, don't you? I mean, at Erlang, clearly that all works, but in the case, say, of F-sharp, I don't know that I've ever seen anyone really demonstrate, here's how every core in this machine lights up with this app. Oh, uh, there's there's uh, plenty of applications like that with F-sharp. Yeah, yeah you, you have to put in an uh, explicit parallel culminator in some way uh, in your, in your F-sharp. So in the end, the developer is saying, this is parallel. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, in, in, uh, unless they're using some parallel library, like parallel uh, sequences, a parallel thing for one or the other. Right. Parallel data yeah, processing library. That's right. You, you, you say, this is going to be, uh, this part of my code is going to be executed. Right. John, when yeah. you talked about Erlang lighting up on all these different processors when they just ran it, is it, does that come down to the developers saying that this is parallel? Or? It comes down to the fact that Erlang encourages programming with a lot of concurrent processes, even if you're running on one core. Mm -hmm. So um, right from the early days of Erlang, people were developing applications that were highly concurrent, handling thousands of phone calls going through the exchange at the same time. And Erlang encouraged to write those concurrent applications using very lightweight concurrent processes. So then when you have multiple cores, it's very easy just to provide a scheduler that uh, runs those processes on multiple cores instead of just one. And that scheduler, as you say, is that in baked into Erlang at a low level, or is yes, that, does the developer has to pay attention? No, no, no. It's built into Erlang at a very low level. So it really is a little operating system in many ways. Sure, yeah. Lots of clever work stealing between the schedulers that are running on one scheduler for OS thread. But I was going to go back a little bit to the early days of um, research on functional programming and parallels. But back in the 80s, people would say, well, the great thing about functional programs is because all the data is immutable, you're free to evaluate any two expressions in parallel. So, you know, let's just make a compiler that sparks off everything in parallel. Right. Well, you can do that. But 
because it's never free right, yeah. to start a task, performance will really, really suck. Sure. So, but if you use Haskell parallelism nowadays, one of the ways of doing that is just to indicate, kick this expression off in parallel, kick that one off in parallel. And you don't say any more than, you know, do this in parallel with the rest of the computation. The code otherwise remains exactly the same as the sequential implementation. Right. And you will get nice parallelism, but you still have to think about granularity so that you don't start tasks that are too small. Interestingly, that's sort of where the task parallel library ended up, too, with this sort of sequential, you know, workflow-based parallelism. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, no, it's kind of interesting. You know, C-sharp and .NET 5, we have async, async await keywords, and we have tasks that, you know, we can say, I want to do this task when this ends, I want to do these tasks when that ends, go to this task, you know. And that's about it. That's all we have to say. Yeah, so I think whether you look at Haskell or Erlang or any other functional language with parallelism, what you're getting is not completely free parallelism. The programmer still has to think about mm -hmm. what should be run in parallel, what granularity should I use. What you're getting is just you're not going to trip over your own shoelaces. Right. The likelihood that you add, okay, run this in parallel, and now it crashes is fairly low. Crash right. in parallel. Well, the likelihood that you say, okay, now I'll run this in parallel, and it suddenly gives you the wrong answer. Yeah. So that's fairly low. So the, the less chance of failure, outright failure, less chance of incorrect answer might be slower, Could very probably well be slower. faster. Probably much faster. Well, that is the real insidious part of race conditions, is that the data will just be wrong. Right? Most of the time. It's not going to crash. It's just that, oh, two things wrote at the same place at the same time. One in a million chance, and the data is wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. You can get race nice conditions in Erlang, too. But you oh, get yeah. them. Yeah, you get them, for example, uh, two processes send messages to the same recipient. The messages could arrive either way around. Yeah. And okay. The recipient could behave differently depending on what happens. Uh, so you can still get races, but you don't get data races. Data, yeah, this is what I'm saying. They're kind of races at a higher level, and they're easier to cope with. Uh, Stuart, what about parallelism in Clojure? So I think that, that in a lot of ways, the move to functional languages is the same across these various languages because the real problem is that imperative code is not sufficiently intention-revealing. So what is the way, if I ask this room, you know, what is the way to do something multiple times in a programming language? Uh, for loop. Yeah. And a loop, yeah. I'm betting on a for loop. The problem with the for loop, how many for loops out there would it be okay to do it in the other order? to go backwards? Or would it be okay to do them in parallel? Right. There are a lot of for loops out there for which it might be okay to do them in a different order, but you can't just go in and write a write a new language that's going to go and interpret for loops that way, because the, the developer has communicated too much. Right. Right. They've communicated, I want to do this, I want to do it... I uh, expect a particular order. In this order. The iterator becomes part of the data that you're using in your loop. So. And so, so iterator is a good point. One of the ways in which closure uh, diverges from imperative languages is you don't have iterators, you have sequences. And at first glance, it's like, well, what's the difference? It's just traversal, mm -hmm. right? But this traversal is immutable, right. right? This traversal is a thing and multiple people can look at it yeah. and, you know, it, it won't cause problems. So you don't get concurrent mo modification exception and things like that. But even with, you know, a functional approach. So in a closure program, you might have um, map across something. Um, Map still says in this documentation string that it's going to do this job in a certain order. So in order to switch to something that's going to be more parallel, so in closure, map is map, and parallel map is pmap. Right. And so in order to make your program eight times faster on eight cores, you have to add the letter P in front of it, and right. you have to know that that's semantically appropriate. Yes, yeah. is that actually given, going to work the way Given what you're, what you're doing. Now, 99% of the time, things you're doing across the net, you don't care 
about the order they're done because you're not also side effecting. Right. Um, particularly because map is lazy, right? So if you're side effecting as part of your map, you're in trouble uh, already. Tell us anyway, what map does just for those who don't. So so map is just like map or collect in a lot of you know Python, Ruby, other languages. It says you know uh, apply this function in order select. Select. That's Everybody has a. Is that C sharp? Is that F sharp as well? No, no, we. Okay. So select. Sorry. There you go. Thanks. Yeah, the link equivalent. So if you were to use parallel map in Haskell, you'd do something quite similar. You might write the map that would evaluate all the elements parallel. Or you could have other variations on that. For example, the one that evaluates 100 elements ahead of the consumer. It gives you pipeline parallels. Okay. So there's a variety of ways you might want to decorate that called map. But I do like this idea that I'm writing code that's going to be survivable as I arguably experiment with these different parallel options and at least get to the consistency result is a question of whether I get significant benefit. I just don't think that the average developer thinks in parallelism beyond a few threads, a foreground and a background. You know, the idea that we would have run hundreds of them is frightening. Well, the average programming problem doesn't require all massively parallel. Yeah, that's, I guess that's the biggest issue here. It's just run-in-the-mill development doesn't often need massive parallels. Well, that's the challenge, isn't it? We've all got to learn how to use it. We've got we, to learn how to use it. We've got a tool. We've got to change our problems to suit the tool. Or, <laughs> or you're going to buy your laptop with your 100 cores, and you're not going to use 90 of them. Well, that is true. I think uh, yeah. I'll run Outlook. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? That's well, it. yeah, okay. <laughs> so there's a situation in which massive parallelism actually has crippled the product, yes. right? Because 65 threads in operation, none of them are for me. For me. <laughs> That's Outlook. Oh, uh, no. It's, 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 sorry I even said that out loud. So you look at Outlook is running 60 threads, and you're like, and it's unresponsive. What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing with all those threads? Right? Where are you? So it's a balancing act. And, you know, it's true. Not all apps require massive parallelism, but, but certainly I get your point, is that we have all these cores, does that just mean that we should be running more apps at the same time in order to take advantage of all this? Uh, I would say that while not necessarily all calculations and calculative things require parallelism, the kinds of things we're building are increasingly concurrent in the domain. Well, this is true. Right, so that's, that's really two separate things. Parallelism is just, I don't really care how this gets done, get it done, but concurrency is like the world, yeah. and then you were talking about you know having a race with two messages coming in different orders. That's a, a property of the actual system we're modeling. Right? Yeah. Things are going to happen in different orders. And so uh, you're ill-equipped to be a programmer 10 years from now if you don't know how to think about those things. Well, this is true. Yeah, true. And, um, yeah I wonder if it's the same way that a few years ago we, we should start thinking in, in MVVM patterns or MVC patterns because stuff's coming, which clearly it's arrived now, and if you're not doing that, you're really struggling. Are we still just preparing for the future here, that, that starting to think in, in these functional ways is going to allow us to program better in 10 years? I think the terrifying thing, and this has been true for quite a while now, is that um, the stuff we need to do next is paved way in front of us. Right. We're not learning as fast as capabilities sure. in hardware and software are growing. And so you can look like a genius just by mining what other people figured out 20 years ago. Right? Just go back and read papers and see what's already been done and just dredge it back up and you know do it in Python or something instead of <laughs> instead of whatever it was written. And then people are like, oh my God, look at that. Such original thinking. Yeah. Questions from the audience? Throw your hand up. I'll run out to you. You just want to see me run up and down the stairs. Ah, yes. It's a you great talk question. talk a little bit about functional databases? Somebody on this panel has been up to functional databases. I think it's Stuart. 
So obviously, that, I don't think that that term has necessarily been imbued with definition yet. Yes. So I'll say what I mean uh, uh, when I talk I know about, about non-functional databases, but that's a different thing. Uh, so <laughs> non-functional. <laughs> a lot of them work that way. So dysfunctional. Yeah. So uh, I could imagine other definitions. So I'll, I'll use I'll characterize it this way. Um, uh, in Datomic, the database itself is a persistent data structure. It's a value. Okay. And so the first thing you do in Datomic, and it feels quite small is you say connection.getDB. And then once you've gotten the DB off the connection, that's a value, and you can sit there and query it and play with it to your heart's content because it's uh, the database itself moves forward by functional transformations. So you send a transaction, which is some data to the database. Um, you get back from a transaction the old value of the database, the new value of the database, the data that changed. And then you can continue to hold on to old values of the database. It's not different from persistent data structures in functional languages. It's just saying, why don't we make that Persistent and also saved somewhere. Yeah, transactional and permanent. And transactional and permanent, yes. Right. You get back a copy of the entire database? That is correct. You get back a copy of the entire old database and the entire new database because persistent data structures can be lazy. Can right? they be big? They can be huge. Right? I mean, think about, think about the way your machine works. Your machine has a level one cache and a level two cache on it. And unless yeah. you're doing hardcore optimization, you're never asking, is my stuff in the level one cache or in the level two cache? In Alright, so uh, you just ask for it and you get it. Correct my mind here, but um, when you say I get back a copy of the database, I'm reminded of those horrific days of access programming in the 90s over a land. Speaking of non-functional databases. You know, where there was no sort of client server, and when you pulled up a, a, a huge database, the whole thing came over the network. Now, are we, am I missing the point? Yes, of course it's not that. That would be terrible. Right? We don't want to, we've, all, we've, all, we've all been there. Yeah. Right? Um, it's, it's like the light in the refrigerator. Right? Even if you know, you know it's there even before you open the refrigerator. Right. Uh, I give you something that's a promise to be able to give you any part of the database you ask for. So it's a reference is what you're saying. No, it's, no, it's a value. It's a value, but it's lazily realized. Oh, okay. You can think of the connection itself I as a reference, where if you ask for the database again, you might get a new value of the database. I got it. Uh, but until you go change. looking at that data, it's not really going to impact performance. I, okay, well, that's the difference. Well, and, and the cool thing about it is that you run a system that's built this way, and you have five different peers accessing the same database, mm -hmm. asking different questions, and they automatically hydrate the subset of the database they need right. into memory uh, as they go. So Instead of having to, like, oh, i got to configure memcache to make sure the answers to these questions are over here and the answers to those questions are over there. So I realize that nobody should, friends don't let friends select star from customers. I understand that. But what if you did? I mean, you know, what if you did select everything from a customers with a database that changed? Are you pulling over all that data? So, uh, the, again, the, there, are, there are multiple choices about yeah. how you're going to handle that. So, uh, Datomic has a data log-based query API. Um, um, there will be um, uh, cutoff points uh, implemented in the future that will stop the what will currently happen, which is you'll eventually exhaust memory and that query will fail. Yeah. And then memory will be released and you'll be punished and you'll go back yeah, and so don't try do again. That. So yeah. don't do that. <laughs> uh, that's still true in the existing databases too, though, right? Yeah. I mean, you can do, the, you know, it's a, it's an arms race to try to prevent someone from asking a question that would hurt the database while still letting them get Well, I know it would hurt the database, but at least it wouldn't ship the entire database to me just to come up with a value, you know? So that's the other piece that's really important to have your head around because that presumes that the database is over there yeah, and that you're over here. And in Datomic, all peers are equally close to storage. So there's not, there is a transactor, the guy who actually organizes asset transactions, but that guy is no closer to storage than you are. Storage is modeled as a service. And so 
you could actually deploy in a wacky topology where some peers were closer to the storage. Mm. So there's not this notion of it's far away and you have to bring it to you. It's as far away as it is. Databases have to put things somewhere. Uh, but it's not any further away than, than it is in a traditional database. Okay, I'm not scared anymore. What about the whole uh, locking model then? You know, I've got three or four different elements that are in a transaction and somebody else is trying to write to those as well. Transaction fails. What happens? So, Datomic takes advantage of research done by others um, that, that 20 shows... 20 years ago, I bet. That 20 years ago, uh, that shows that you can actually have a really fast write system with a single writing thread. Okay. So, there's no locking. But, um, there's just a, a there's a, a single writing thread, yeah. and so if you want to transact, you go through that. And so Datomic is fundamentally limited. If you need to write thirty terabytes a year of data, then you shouldn't use it. Okay, right? It's good at it's good at what it's good at. Yeah, it's good at what it's good at. So I have a question about data. Is it possible to garbage collect data, or is the database always growing? So it is. You know, we made the point earlier that garbage collection is important for persistent data structures because Datomic itself is a persistent and durable data structure, it makes garbage. And so over time, basically the thing that makes garbage is the indexing jobs that rebuild the trees. And as they rebuild the trees, they take note of which uh, nodes are no longer, and, and they maintain a list of those nodes. And then you can choose to run a garbage collection process. Now, the consequence of running that garbage collection process is that you could rip the ground out from under, not someone who has a current connection, but someone who has a connection and called GetDB on it and then ran a query that took a week to evaluate, right? So you should collect the garbage at a reasonable frequency, like maybe collect garbage over within 30 days or something like that. Not necessarily a daily process. You might run it daily, but with a 30-day back window. Yeah, look back 30 days. Right. Now, that said, most people are building systems. There's some people in the audience who have built datomic systems that most of them are, your queries run in seconds, not hours or days. Right. So, so it's quite conservative to you know, allow a 30-day window for queries to complete. So it seems yeah. like it encourages good behavior on the on the, on the queries uh, behalf, and therefore has a lot of don't do this. There's a lot of maybe don'ts, perhaps. So what kind of, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm following well, we just talked about two, right? Don't select star from customers. And uh, what was the other one that you just mentioned? Uh, don't collect the garbage. Yeah, early. don't collect don't the garbage. Don't throw out the garbage. Early. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's time for things to include. What, what does querying look like in the economy? So data log, uh, again, research done 20 years ago, um, was uh, an unfortunate, it, 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 did, uh, it did not take off and relational algebra took off right. and became SQL. But data log is actually a superset of the capability of relational algebra. So the kinds of things you expect to be able to get from a SQL query mm -hmm. are the kinds of things you could ask Datomic. The difference is that the syntax of data log is pattern matching, right? So you lay out a pattern that says, you know, whose email is question mark. And then that variable with the question mark in front of it comes back uh, populated. Yeah. Uh, I find that to be the most beautiful thing about it. I, I love the pattern matching nature of data log as a consumer of query. Um, I always find that the minute you get that, that second join table going in a SQL query, I'm like, it no longer looks like the data that I'm working with. Right. And the nice thing about a data log query is it continues to look like the data as you work with it. Yeah, somewhere on the fifth or sixth join, you're, it's like the N plus one problem. Now you're in hell. And in a datomic query with six joins, it's just a variable that's paired in six different places in the pattern. Right? So you say, oh, it appears over here and it appears over there. Right? There are no join tables. Right. It's a universal schema database. So there are no there are no tables, period. No asterisk equals or equals asterisk or any of that garbage. Uh, are there other functional databases that you know? I was actually discussing that with Rich before coming on the panel today to just 
try not to misspeak. I, I would defer to the rest of the panel to see people have seen others. I don't know of any similar to Datomic. Of course, there are other databases implemented using functional programming languages. Right. The one that springs to mind would be React, implemented in uh, Erlang. Right. But um, it's not functional in the same sense. It's just using a functional language underneath the hood yeah. to implement a NoSQL key value store. Well, Don, with type providers, isn't the world your database? Absolutely. I'm okay. looking forward to uh, interfacing to these, these great systems. I think uh, that would be uh, very, you know, to, to see what the Datomic looks like. As a, as a, so you can host it as a service to be accessed as a service point, which you can access from other other systems. Some, uh, you some can, we, we have not exposed it as a service commercially, but you can run it as a service for yourself. Right. And I know that in the Scala community, the, some really sharp guys have gone and added type theory stuff on top of it. So they've, they've reintroduced types where we, we're dynamic. So I would think you could do something similar with that chart. Yeah, we'd be looking just to add a metadata layer on top. You get this entire thing through the tables and uh, correct, uh, yeah, correctness checking for the queries. So yeah, definitely a target. Anything, anything, any service out there is a target for Super a chart. Not yeah. everything. We'll just, right. yeah. Yeah. We have time for one more question. Does, does uh, a mechanism like F-sharp type providers uh, change uh, how companies, broadly speaking, might... Uh, might think about their data architecture and on the on the production side of data and not just the uh, the consuming side. So I'd say no in some ways. The, the, the bet we've made with F-Sharp type providers is there's just a lot of information around you in the digital context and you want to be able to bring that into the language in very consistent ways. Uh, but through, through, a, through a plug-in point into the compiler architecture or compile-time metaprogramming kind of uh, technique. So... It's, 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 it's really about saying we're not trying to influence how the rest of the world does its data architecture because we just want to be our language to be really, really heterogeneous in a strongly typed way across to many different kinds of systems that have metadata. And because we the world is now so overflowing with data that we can't control the future evolution of data protocols or architectures, we just need a language that will work with any kind of data protocol and architecture in a really strongly typed way. And so it's, it's almost the opposite of what you say. We're not trying to influence the providers of data. We're just trying to, you know, f sharp is, is, is it's like a ship on the digital ocean, right? It's like there's a, when there's a, these data, pro, data protocols uh, and storage systems, I mean, it's a, it's a wild west, right? People are coming up with new data protocols all the time and new schematizations and, you know, they've all got their new databases with their own stuff and there's different trends that go through, cultural issues that go through and new... So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think if you look back on it, you're putting XML literals into VV is an example of where you're tying the language too closely to a particular data, concrete data representation, sure. and way too close. So we're just trying to play in the data game, in the metadata space as well, without tying ourselves close. Well, guys, that's the show. Have a big hand for our panel. Don Stewart, John, and David. And we'll see you next time on Don and Rock! Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. 
online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got to transmit a band.